Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. I want you to know that you are loved and missed, and I want you to know that you belong at Trinity Bible Church. I can't wait till we can be back together. But as we think about that, I'm reminded in this season about this basic reality of humanity. I believe that all of us long to belong. All of us have a a deep inward human desire, a basic instinct that we want to belong and be a part of something bigger than ourselves, a people, a community, uh, a church. Well, this morning I'm reminded of a quote in Mary Shelley's book, Frankenstein. On this book, Victor Frankenstein creates this creature who's supposed to be a human, uh, but he turns out to be a monster. Now, what's fascinating is he doesn't really know that he is a monster, that people look at him and see a deformed, hideous creature until he sees the way that they respond to him. So whenever he shows up, people are after him with, with pitchforks. Well, he has this opportunity early on where he is looking into a home. He finds a crack through a, a wall in a cottage and he peers through and he's, he's peeking in on this family and he's watching them and he's learning what it looks like for a family to engage and to love one another. And I've always been gripped by this scene as he looks in, he looks in longingly. He, he wants this family that he's watching to actually be his family. And in chapter 14 of that book, he says, as he watched them, I admired virtue and good feelings and love the gentle manners and the amiable qualities of my cottagers, the the people in the cottage. But I was shut out from intercourse with them, except through the means which I obtained by stealth when I was unseen and unknown, and which rather increased than satisfied the desire that I had of becoming one among my fellows. He longed to be a, a part of this people. He longed to belong, but he was rejected by what he called his family that he watched. Even his creator, Victor, rejected him. Well, this morning we'll see that as we look at 2 Samuel 5, we too are a people who are needy for community, needy to belong. We need the good shepherd to lead us to the love that we long for. Well, we're back in our series on the life of David this morning in 2 Samuel 5, which is really a snapshot of David's reign. All of Israel's uh, people come and they anoint David as the shepherd king. And he takes Mount Zion as their capital. Now, three things I think are going to help us as we read the section this morning and as we look through it. Uh, First, David's anointing is a long time coming. So Israel demanded a king like the nations who would go out and fight and save them from their enemies. But God rejected Saul as king before wiping out because he did not wipe out the Amalekites. He also refused, Saul refused to wait on Samuel to offer sacrifices before he went to battle and offered themselves. And as a result, he was rejected. Well, it was a long time before David experienced the fulfillment of his being anointed. In fact, I recently read a Jets article by Leslie McFall who argued persuasively that Samuel anointed David when he was just 18 years old to replace Saul in 1 Samuel 16. See, life got harder when David received the Spirit of God. Life did not get easier, it got harder. The shepherd David literally left tending sheep to strike down the giant Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. And and, and the women soon sang 
Saul has killed his thousands and David has his tens of thousands. But out of fear and jealousy, what we find is that Saul actually sought to kill David. In fact, he spent a decade trying to kill David. He gave David's wife to another man, and then he ran him out of the country to Philistia, to live amongst the Philistines. See, God handed the throne of Judah to David when Saul died at the end of 1 Samuel. But Saul's son Ishbosheth still reigned for seven and a half years over Israel before all of Israel came out to recognize David as a king here in 2 Samuel 5. Now, the second thing we need to know is not only was it a long time coming, but the events that we read about here actually took place over a long period of time. So for instance, we see the list of sons that David had in Jerusalem, and it's over time. These weren't sons that were all born at the same time. Uh, no, these were sons that were built over a long time in Jerusalem. And, and you'll notice also this mention of Hiram of Tyr. Some believe that he gave this gift that's mentioned here as much as 25 years after David's enthronement. So these verses are really introducing us to the reign of David and giving us a snapshot of this king after God's own heart who went out to fight in God's name for God's people and to save them from their enemies, not with sword or spear, but in the power of the Lord. And the third and maybe the most important thing that we see as we begin this morning is that we need to know that David is God's Messiah who points to the greater Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now, our bigger idea this morning as we're going through, I want to flesh this out for us. We're going to see that we have a greater shepherd king who has healed us for a greater city. We have a greater shepherd king who has healed us for a, a greater city. Well, let's pray and ask for the Lord's help as we go through this this morning. Father, as we are coming to hear from your word this morning, many of us, uh, Lord, uh, are in our homes. Uh, many of uh, the folks that are listening, some are are single and alone, some are with kids. Um, Father, we are in all kinds of different places, but we are all equally needy to hear from you. And so, Father, this morning we pray that you would speak freshly into our lives through the life of David. Help us to see the majesty of how David points to Christ and how Christ is the greater shepherd king that we all need to heal us. And it's in the great name of your son that we do pray. Amen. Well, the first thing that we're going to see here this morning is that all of Israel anoints David shepherd king in verses 1 to 5. All of Israel comes out and anoints David as the shepherd king. Now, think about this. David, at this point, has waited almost 20 years to come and take the throne of all of Israel. It's been 20 years of him waiting to see the fulfillment of God's promise that he would be king of all of Israel. But on this day, he sees that fulfillment when Israel comes to anoint him as king with one voice. We see this in verses 1 to 3. Catch what it says. In 2 Samuel 5, 1 to 3, it says this. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led us out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king in Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. 
Now, did you catch in those verses the three reasons that we are given that Israel anoints David as king? For one, they, they cite that they are family. You'll notice it says that you are bone and flesh. You are our bone and flesh. We are one body. Now, this language really carries the idea of someone who is a brother. Of course, David is a brother from another mother, but at the same time, they are part of Israel. They are united. They are one. And Deuteronomy 7.15 said that if Israel had a king, it needed to be a king who was from amongst their brothers. It's their way of saying, you're one of us. Now, Israel chose one of their own sheep to serve as their shepherds. I believe that's a basic longing in every human heart, to belong at someone's dinner table. Every human heart longs to be a part of something more than themselves. And what we find here is David being received and taken in. It speaks of a deep kind of unity and oneness between the elders of Israel and all of Israel and their king. Saul and Israel chose David, chased David away from his dinner table. You'll remember that he uh, drove him away with his spear. Later he took his wife and he ran him out of the country. See, David was a man who was acquainted with sorrows and he understood what it was like to be rejected by people and to live in exile. He lived Israel's history in a sense of exile and he trusted God in the wilderness. But on this day, this is a new day. And all of Israel comes, they come and they say, you are now one of us. It's not hard to imagine that this day inspired David to sing as a musician. And we might just find that in Psalm 133, 1, where he says, behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. So we all long to belong and our hearts dance when we feel accepted and apart. And that's what a great Christmas means for you and me. When we have that holiday that we desire and long for and prepare for, we are looking for a moment that is like this, a moment that displays the unity and harmony of the family in such a way that we will not forget, that we will not be able to look back and be encouraged by what God has done. But here, notice what we find is, David, he has been accepted. And he says belonging is praiseworthy. In fact, one thing that's, I think, beautiful in a church is when they are able to sing together in harmony. Harmony, when we sing together and when our voices come together, like I can't wait for that to happen whenever the quarantine is open, it testifies to the beauty of unity with each part contributing to the whole in such a way that it is pleasing to the ears. Well, you'll remember that God created Eve from the rib of Adam. And he declared the kind of unity that was created with them, saying, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. See, in that statement, he is talking about the profound unity that is created in the covenant of marriage. But here, Israel is covenanting together with their king, a new covenant with a new king. In fact, Walter Brueggemann, speaking of this language of flesh and bone, says it also pictures a covenant between these people, Israel and David, similar to that between Adam and Eve, with, with 
flesh speaking of weakness, and the bone speaking of strength. So that when you put the strength and the weakness together, it's an image of the reality that they are committing to be together with one another and for one another, both in thick and thin, both in times of rich and poor, in sickness and in health, in good times and bad. They will not leave one another. It's a commitment that they are making And they are telling David on this day, you are one of us. You're not only God's Messiah, you are our Messiah. And Israel and Judah have been riddled with division. But here on this day, David experiences the joys and the beauty of a God-given unity. There's harmony in this unity. But notice this, they also, second, tell David, it's always been you. Not only you're one of us, but it's, it's always been you. Now you'll remember in 1 Samuel 8, 20, Israel demanded a king to judge and go out before them and fight their battles. Well, even during Saul's reign, David was leading from the front. Maybe they hadn't said it so clearly before, but you will remember that David killed Goliath as Saul hid in his tent. And even as Saul was killing his thousands, David was killing his tens of thousands. See, Israel says, we see you, David. We see what you've been doing. We've been watching. And it's always been you. Even during the reign of Saul, it was you. And then third, they say, we're choosing you as king because God told you you'd be king. Now, they know that Yahweh, the the covenant-keeping God of Israel, he prophesied, he made a commitment, a promise to David that he would be their shepherd and prince. Now, we don't know exactly where this prophecy is located. We don't see it in the scriptures specifically, this idea of shepherd. We do remember in 1 Samuel 25, 30, that Abigail went to David and pushed back his wrath by promising and reminding him of the promise of the Lord who appointed him to be a prince over Israel. Of course, Saul was called prince, and we see that David would be the prince that would replace him But this is the first time that we see a human called a shepherd king in the Bible. You'll remember in 2 Samuel 3, 9, Abner acknowledged that Yahweh had sworn to David that he would be king. Abner knew about it, but we don't know from where. But catch this. In Genesis 48, we do see a shepherd king over Israel. Joseph calls God his shepherd. God is the shepherd king over Israel. And if you look at ancient history, you'll notice that Egyptians, Mesopotamians, and Greeks, they all had this idea that God would be the the great shepherd of the nation, but that his king or vice regent would shepherd the people for their great shepherd God. Metaphor, the metaphor of a shepherd was common for kings and gods. Good shepherds would guide sheep to food and safety with his staff, and he would beat off enemies like wolves with his rod. In Shepherds After My Own Heart, Timothy Laniac writes this. He says, good shepherds grew their flocks and knew their sheep in terms of birth, health, history, eating habits, and other idiosyncrasies. One of the most striking characteristics of the shepherd-flock relationship is that control over the flock is exercised simply by the sound of the shepherd's voice or whistle. So David, rightly saying, 
The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The, the shepherd king acknowledges that God is the shepherd. And, and not only that, he loved the voice of the great shepherd. You'll remember that he, speaking of the word, says that it is sweeter than honey and to be desired more than precious metals. But here God's king looks like his God as a shepherd of his people. And David becomes the model throughout the scriptures of a, a good shepherd. As Tremper Longman notes, it is the shepherd's task to lead, feed, and heed his flock. The shepherd metaphor was a happy choice for benevolent rulers and grateful people alike. David thus becomes a paradigm for the shepherd king. So you see the emphasis on the totality of David's leadership on this day and his reign overall in verses 3 to 5. You'll notice that he repeats all, all. This is a sign of his reign over all of Israel. Now look what it says in verses 3 to 5. This is what he writes. It says, So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Now notice in verse 1, 3, and 5, the repetition of all, all of Israel. And it's highlighting the unity of God's people under David for his 40-year reign as a shepherd king of Israel. Now, all of Israel anoints David because he's a brother. God's spirit has evidently empowered him to save them, and God's word confirmed him as their shepherd king. Now, the word for shepherd, it, it is a picture that we use for healthy leadership throughout the Bible. In fact, if you look at the word pastor in the New Testament, it actually comes from a Latin word that points to shepherds who would pasture their sheep. And it, it points to the, the nature of the way that shepherds care for and love sheep in a, a happy kind of way. Now here at Trinity, we understand that pastors and elders serve in the same role. Their, their job, their function is to care for God's people. They are under shepherds of a greater shepherd. Now you know that it's important that if you are a good pastor, that you are tender and tough. See, if a pastor is going to be a good pastor, he needs to be both. You need to be tender and tough at, at the same time. In fact, if you look at Ezekiel 34, you'll notice that God, his prophet, speaks about bad shepherds. Bad shepherds beat and eat sheep, but good shepherds lead, heed, and feed them. Well, we find that this is exactly the kind of model of what pastors are to do for God's people. Now, if a pastor is too tough, he's going to beat the sheep. But if he's too tender, he's not going to protect the sheep from intruding wolves who are teaching dangerous theologies or causing divisions in the body. If he's too tender, he'll get chewed up by the sheep. If he's too tough, he will not be warm. But if he's too tender, he will become angry and either lash out or run away when trouble hits. So let me just encourage you, Trinity, 
Pray for your pastors. Pray for your elders. We want to be tender and tough, and we need God's strength to be able to lead in God's way. See, good pastors run into the mess of people's lives, and they get messy and sometimes chewed on if they're doing their job. Pray that God would make your shepherds a healthy balance of tender and tough for you. Help us to be fearless and compassionate. Pray that God would raise up more tender and tough shepherds that will love you and protect you and feed you. See, the last thing a pastor wants is for sheep to run when they hear the shepherd's voice. We want sheep that trust shepherds, that trust that they will be protected and safe when they run to them, trust that those shepherds will love them and have compassion for them. Pray that we would be that way. Pray that we would have more pastors like that. And who do you allow, if you're thinking about being a pastor, I have a word just for for men this morning. One thing that I I think is important to ask yourself is, who do you allow to pastor your soul? Maybe you're pastoring your family. Maybe you're pastoring a classroom. Maybe even a classroom of theology. Maybe you're a boss at work and you have people under your care. And you're always leading and you're always in front. But let me ask you this, brother. Is there anyone that is shepherding you? Let me ask you just to consider this this morning as you're thinking about who's shepherding your soul. Do you have anyone in your local church who's shepherding you? If you're too good to be shepherded, you are likely too good to shepherd other messy people. Single ladies, when you think about shepherds, let me just encourage you to look for men like this, good shepherds, men who are compassionate towards others and gentle but who are strong in the word of God, and they're just growing stronger. Don't miss this. Abuse can really work in two ways, and you need to be aware of both. Uh, It can be both omissive and oppressive. A lot of times when we think about abuse, it speaks of someone is too harsh or oppressive. We need to avoid that. But, But abuse can also be omissive in the sense that men fail to do things to protect their wives, to protect women, to protect the weak and the vulnerable, rather than stepping in to put their life on the line for them. You want a guy who is neither harsh nor negligent. Now, I think a good word for you is, is a word from Judges that prepares us for King David, the shepherd king. There's this constant refrain at the end of the book as things are getting worse and worse for women. Uh, We are reminded again and again, there was no judge in Israel. There was no judge in Israel, no king in Israel. And every man did what was right in his own eyes. And I believe that's so important. There are days in a man's life and maybe seasons and maybe his whole life is characterized by the reality that there is no king in his life And he does what is right in his eyes all day long. And it's not good. It's not healthy. See, we need a good king. We need Christ to be Lord of our lives. We need shepherds like pastors to be over us. So ladies, look for men who are submitting to the leadership of shepherds. And single guys, let me encourage you to be fearless in your confidence in God and his word. Be excited, be enthusiastic about it, but simultaneously make sure that you're being careful to be gentle and compassionate towards others. There's a zeal for the Lord that can actually scorch people that God would have you actually encourage. You need to make sure that you are being tender and tough. Jerk isn't a fruit of the Spirit. Gentleness is. So be gentle. God's Word should make you gentle if you're rightly understanding it. 
Of course, David really pointed to something much more, though. David was just assigned to a greater shepherd king, Jesus. See, David was a sheep who became a shepherd. But Jesus is the shepherd who became a sheep to lay down his life for other sheep. Think about it. Jesus is the eternal son of God, the ultimate shepherd, who came down to become one of us, our brother, a sheep. I recently had someone tell me when they were thinking about this reality of Jesus as a, a sacrificial sheep for us in my office. They, he said that he didn't think that Jesus dying as a sacrifice in our place was really the main point of the cross. And I listened to a Good Friday sermon from a pastor recently who said that Jesus dying in our place isn't the meaning of the cross. This is a big conversation that's going on as we think about what kind of king is Jesus if he's a king like David? Well, in a recent T4G sermon, Greg Gilbert showed how author Scott McKnight and Matthew Bates are preaching uh, what you might call a kingship gospel or a royal gospel. In fact, Bates writes somewhere uh, saying that Jesus is king, and he even goes on to say, our justification by faith is not part of the gospel. So that the gospel is the good news merely that Jesus is king, period. Did you catch that? Jesus is king, but it doesn't mean necessarily that we need to talk about the fact that Jesus was a sacrificial lamb for you and me. But don't miss this. Jesus isn't just a king. He's a shepherd king. In fact, the New Testament calls him the good shepherd in John 10, 11. The great shepherd in Hebrews 13, 20. And the chief shepherd in 1 Peter 5, 4. And in each of these contexts, you'll notice that Jesus' death on behalf of his sheep is highlighted. It's accentuated, it's pointed out, it's made much of as a necessary ground for the new covenant with his new covenant people. So here we find that Jesus isn't just king, he's a specific kind of king. We see this all over the Bible. If you're reading carefully, you'll notice. For instance, in Isaiah, we have Isaiah broken up into three parts. We find that the first part is that there is a coming Messiah like David, a king. The second part talks about this suffering servant. And the third part goes on to talk about this conqueror. And it's hard as you read to think that maybe all three of these pictures are the same character. But what we find is, is that that suffering servant is also that king who would become that conqueror. And when you read it, you find in section 2 on the suffering servant a beautiful picture of who our king would be. In Isaiah 53, 4-6, it says this, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, the greater Messiah would heal his sheep with his wounds. He must suffer for us. There would be no crown without a cross. Now we could say a lot more about this, but we need to highlight here that the gospel isn't just that Jesus is king. The gospel is that Jesus is the king who saved his people from 
their sins by his suffering. He healed them spiritually. See, physical healing here is a picture of spiritual healing. The good shepherd became the sacrificial lamb to bring his sheep to God. He sacrificed himself. And that's what I believe the scene on Mount Zion and the verses that follow are pointing towards. Notice second, God's, God's king grows greater and greater in Zion. God's king grows greater and greater in Zion. You'll notice here that we find Zion used for the first time in the Bible. Now, the city of Jerusalem was located on Mount Zion. You have to ask yourself, I, I did when I read this text, why is it that David took Jerusalem? Why that city to be his capital? You know, why did David take the head of Goliath to Jerusalem in 1 Samuel 17, 54? What is it? about Jerusalem. There seems to be just something about Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem, of course, does make a wise political sense. as land that's still under the power of the Jebusites, positioned between Benjamin to the north and, and Judah to the south, it makes sense that it would be a wise position for the city of David, Israel's version of Washington, D.C. Now, there may be more going on here, though. See, Jerusalem was an ancient city. You, you'll remember that it first pops up in Genesis 14, where Abraham has just defeated Keterleomer, and he comes, and Mel, he comes to Melchizedek, and he shows up to pay homage to him. So the great father of our faith, the, the one with whom the great covenant was made, uh, we find that, that in that text, he is coming and paying homage to one as though he is greater than himself, and his name is Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek's name is interesting because it means king of righteousness, but the text tells us he's also priest of the Most High God. And he comes from the city of Salem, Jerusalem, or peace. So he is a peace, he is a, a, the prince of peace, who is a king of righteousness, and he has come out as a priest to make intercession for Abraham with the Most High God. Now this is fascinating. David has Melchizedek in his mind in Psalm 110. And he speaks of a son who's going to come from him, a son who's going to be greater than him, and a son who's going to be not just a king after the line of David, but a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, who shows up way before the Aaronic priesthood shows up, is there as a priest and as a king. And David is thinking about this individual. I wonder if that had anything to do with the nature of why David would create his city on this Mount Zion. See, here we find that Zion, throughout the scriptures, it speaks of the city where Yahweh dwells in Isaiah 8.18. It is the city where Yahweh reigns as king in Isaiah 24.23, and where God has installed his king David in Psalm 2.6. See, David's first kingly act was to take this city. And here's how it went down in verses 6 to 9. It's fascinating. Here's what it says. It says, and when they came, sorry, verses 6 to 9, and the king and his men went to Jerusalem again against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here. But the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, 
Let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from Milo inward. Now, this could be taken in a, in a number of ways. You know, as you think about David and his soul hating the lame and the blind, you, you might think of that as a little bit funny that a great warrior like David would go up against the lame and the blind. Or you might think that it's ironic that this great warrior takes his holy hill and it is in the context of the lame and the blind. Or, or maybe you even think that it's hateful that this giant slayer and Messiah is taking out these weak people who were, in some senses, considered to be uh, imperfect and unable to come into the presence of God. And, and this is his first move of king of Israel. So why does this text highlight him defeating the lame and the blind again and again? Well, let me begin by saying, clearly this isn't saying that he hates all blind and lame people because he'll invite the lame Mephibosheth, to come and live in his home just in chapter 9. But here's the context. The Jebusites, you'll notice, they, they view themselves, they call themselves the lame and the blind. The, the Jebusites take incredible pride in their invincible position in Zion. In fact, that Jewish historian Josephus says that they were actually taking such confidence in their safety that their wall created that they literally lined it with blind and lame people to mock David. Even our blind and lame can keep you out. See, they trusted their wall and they did not fear David, Israel, or David's God. Pride comes before the fall though, doesn't it? Now, if you've been watching the stock market lately, you'll probably hear this phrase again and again, past results certainly don't guarantee future performance. And the same is true of this wall of the Jebusites. They've created this Zion that they have put all of their confidence in, and they cannot imagine that God can get to them through their wall, even if there is a God, even if Israel and their God is real. You know, I don't think that we're altogether unlike this, though. Maybe you have a Zion that you've built in your life. You know, I think we, we as people still build up our own individual Zions, our private Zions, our private Zions of our, our friendships, our, our money, our education, our family, our reputation, being a good person, our beauty. And, and we feel safe from needing to deal with God's king. Now, some of us kind of think, like Job, if we offer sacrifices for ourselves and others and live right, then we're safe. No one can get to us. You know, some of us think that we deserve the American dream if we obey Jesus. But none of these protected us from the coronavirus. And we are not promised that we will be safe from suffering in this life. You know, I've had friends who have lost jobs, businesses, parents, friends, and, and health over the virus. We are not ever safe. We are always needy of God, desperately needy for him. But here's how it goes down, the defeat of these Jebusites. Don't miss this. Confidence in their invincible wall looks flimsy against God's spirit-anointed king. See, the Jebusites were more vulnerable than they knew in Zion, as is normal in David's battles. Here again, there is more space given to trash talk than the fight itself. 
Uh, you'll notice the text says David sent his men up through a water shaft. Some identify that as uh, Warren's shaft, a natural sort of 46-foot uh, hole that, that goes straight down uh, from the mountain. And, and it's attached and connected to waterways. Uh, one of the places that it's connected to is Hezekiah's tunnel, which is a, an underground tunnel that's about a third of a mile. Uh, I've actually walked through that uh, crazy tunnel. Um, mostly the ceilings are very low. Uh, and it's filled with water, so kind of a, a weird walk. But you walk through, and you can look up, and you can see up into this shaft. That's where some people think David went and attacked. Others think that maybe the language is saying that David instead kind of cut off the water supply. But either way, the main point is this. David took Zion and named it the city of David. That's what happened. The proud Jebusites who were boasting in being blind and lame told David, you'll never get in. But David took Zion. The text says that David hated these particular lame and blind folks. And in verse 9 says, Therefore, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. I think that's an important verse. And the first question I have is what house? It could be David's house, or it could be the house of the Lord. Now, the temple had not been built yet, but David will bring the ark for their worship, very short and soon. And I take it to be whatever the, the temple or worship center of the moment is. In fact, the Greek version of 1 Samuel 5, when it gets to this verse, it translates house there, house of the Lord, which was completed by the second century BC, that, that Greek version. And so at least by the second century BC, they understood this to be speaking of the temple. Now, Thomas Hendrick adds this. He says, more likely though, disabled people seem to have played a more active role in the Jebusite cult center prior to the capture by David, but are considered impure by Israelite standards. For this reason, they are subsequently excluded from the temple once it was built shortly after David's reign. Now, this is fascinating. David takes the city, and the first declaration he makes is about cultic worship. See, David understands that the city of David is the city of the most high, holy, completely pure God. And in his understanding, the blind and the lame are impure, and they cannot enter the house of the pure God. See, he looks so much like a priest, mediating worship between God and his people. But here's the question. Why did David say that the lame and the blind could not come in? If you read Leviticus 21, a number of people with imperfections are listed. And what they're told is, is that these people can't serve as priests. But it doesn't specifically say that those who have these, these blemishes can't come into the house of the Lord. Now, maybe David drew this conclusion from Leviticus because Israel was meant to be a kingdom of priests mediating relationship with God to the nations. And any man who has a defect may not approach God. Or maybe David intensified the legal requirements. But either way, later Jewish literature that's written during the same time as the New Testament days emphasized that impure people like the blind and the lame could not be in the presence of, of their God altogether. They could not come before a pure and holy God, and they cited Leviticus 21 and this verse in 2 Samuel 5.8. Here's what's fascinating, though. 
our greater David has come, the greater Messiah, Jesus. And this picks up a story that's recorded in all three Gospels, the triumphal entry where Jesus enters in to cleanse the temple. But Matthew alone records a scene that happened on that day immediately after the cleansing of the temple. And immediately after, he says, my house shall be a house of prayer. In Matthew 21, 14, this is the unique addition that he has. He says, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Here's what's fascinating. The scene is powerful if you know something about the architecture of the temple. Uh, We find elsewhere in Acts 3, there's another blind man that's brought and laid down daily at the beautiful gate as he awaits uh, people to to give him alms and and that sort of thing. But the picture is, is that that's as close as he could get. He wasn't allowed into the temple. He was left on the outside, and it's not until he gets his sight back that he's allowed to come in. But in Matthew 21, the scene is different. The lame and the blind aren't waiting at the beautiful gate anymore. They are running after Jesus in the middle of the temple. And Jesus healed them. Now think about this. The first Messiah said, stay out until you are healed. Keep your blemishes out there. You cannot come before a holy God. You don't belong in God's presence. You talk about a longing to belong and being told that you cannot come into the presence of God. That's a dark place. But the greater Messiah says, come in. And he heals them. And they worship in the temple on the spot. See, this is why the scribes, who were looking on at these wonderful things, were indignant. The lame and the blind did not belong there. They belonged there in their own self-righteousness, they believed. But these who were blemished and deformed, they did not belong in the presence of God. They weren't supposed to come into God's presence until they got better. But here they come into Jesus, and he heals them physically. Now, This physical healing, it only points to a greater spiritual healing that was coming. Now, if you think the blind and the lame rejoiced at worshiping in the temple on Palm Sunday, Jesus was just getting started. Because it was just a week later on Easter Sunday that the veil that separated everyone but the high priest once a year from entering into the presence of God where he was most fully seen was rent from top to bottom as the cross of Christ carried Jesus dying on it. And it was there that God himself ripped the veil that separated from his presence, that veil that communicated to everyone, you do not belong here. He now opens it up and he says, we're open for business. All of the blind, all of the lame, all of the self-righteous, put your self-righteousness down, put all of those brokenness down, and I want you to come in and I want you to meet me. I will change you. It is by his wounds, Jesus' wounds, that we were healed spiritually so that we might come into the presence of God. Now notice that in verses 9 to 25, King David grew greater and greater throughout his reign. The great king of Hiram of Tyre, Built David a house, another sign of the greatness of David. David took on more wives and concubines in Jerusalem, increasing his political power through these relationships and demonstrating the blessing of the womb. It's interesting, though, there's also a hint of the reality that we we might not have a perfect David. In fact, the names of the first kids mentioned here are actually Bathsheba's kids. And not only that, he saves Israel from the Philistines when he seeks God's face. 
and God breaks forth in power. God is the king of Israel. The first shepherd king kicked out the blind and the lame by show of power. But the greater shepherd disarmed the spiritual forces against us in humility and weakness where he laid down his life on the cross to heal his people. Now, I want to close with just a few brief points, and I'm going to take Tim Keller's lead where he shows Jesus is healing the blind and the lame in the temple actually points us upward, forward, and downward. Upward, forward, and downward. It points us upward to the reality that Jesus is God's Messiah. You know, the miracles that happen throughout the New Testament, they are actually authenticating the reality that Jesus is God. That he does what only God can do. Only God can raise the lame. But what's even more amazing is not just that he can raise the lame, but that he can forgive sins. That he can bring spiritual healing to bring us to God. And so this miracle first points our attention as he is in there in the temple healing the lame and the blind. He is declaring that I am who I say I am, God's son. But it also points us forward. This scene is a beautiful and glorious scene, a scene of hope. Just as Israel probably would have looked back to this scene, this beautiful scene described in 2 Samuel 5 of the unity of the nation, all on David's hill, Mount Zion, where God dwelled. We should look forward to a restoration that is coming. See, this points us forward to the coming restoration. We weren't made for the city of David. No, we were made for a greater city, the city of Jesus, that will descend from heaven on the last day, the day that we read about in Revelation. See, we long for the new Jerusalem, where broken people who are impure and unworthy will be given new bodies so that we can dwell with God forever. I was reading that list in Leviticus 21. It says people with eczema couldn't enter the temple. I mean, sometimes I got eczema, so I would be allowed into the temple. But there's coming a day where there's no more eczema, there's no more lameness, there's no blindness, Our sins will be forgiven, they will be no more, and we will dwell with God forever. See, healing is coming physically and spiritually. Sin and sorrow will pass away. And who is on the throne in Revelation 21? It is God and the Lamb. The Lamb will be on the throne forever because the great shepherd of our souls became a sheep so that God's sheep can get in. Now, if you're here and you're listening online and you're thinking to yourself, You know, I'm not a Christian, and I I long to belong with God. And I've I've been hoping that someone would show me the way. I want to encourage you this morning that Jesus Christ is the good shepherd of your soul. He died in your place on the cross. And if you'll confess that you are a sinner in need of that Savior, if you will confess that he is king of your life, not just king and authority over your life by virtue of his kingness, but the kind of king that he is, that he had to lay down his life for you because without his sacrifice, you would not be accepted with God. If you'll put your faith in that king and turn to living for him today, you become a sheep, one of God's people. Let me encourage you to do that. That is the only way to have the future and the hope and the restoration that God promises. It is promised only to his people. It is joy and beauty unparalleled for those who love God. But for those who don't, it is pain and suffering and misery forevermore. But third, brothers and sisters, it points downward. See, David was acquainted with suffering, but only Jesus suffered and died on a cross to heal us and bring us to God. 
And we need to be aware of the reality, the awe-inspiring reality, that it was through suffering that Christ was able to bring us life. There's coming a day when there will be no more tears. That's the restoration. But until then, we are promised that we will face suffering. In fact, if you look at every religion, every religion is trying to answer two basic questions. One is, what do we do with death? How do we respond? How do we understand that? And two, how do we understand the sufferings of this life? Because this life is full of suffering. We're only told in Christianity that we have a God who stooped down to suffer for us and in our place so that we might have hope. But our ministry and this side of Jesus coming back is a ministry that will be shaped by suffering and we shouldn't be surprised by it. It is the suffering that actually shows that we are united with Jesus. In the same way that with David, when he received the Spirit, things got harder. In the same way that when Jesus receives the Spirit, he immediately is confronting Satan. We can expect that if we are on team Jesus, if he is our king, we will suffer like him. See, when Jesus received the Spirit, things got harder, a lot harder. And when Christians receive the Holy Spirit, we should expect to take up our crosses and follow Jesus as we seek to bring other broken people to God. Suffer well and bear fruit, brothers and sisters. Don't run from suffering. Be faithful through it. Love others and trust God. Love sacrificially. I want to encourage you. I know that one of the hardest things in the world to do is to be faithful when you are suffering. It's hard when you feel like you are living a righteous life, maybe kind of like Job, and you're seeking to honor Jesus in all things. And life keeps coming. And things keep coming and and suffering hits and you begin to wonder, am I doing this thing wrong? Have I done something to deserve this? Is this because God doesn't love me or life isn't working right? Did I or, or one of my friends do something wrong? Was it my wife or my family? Why do we suffer in this way? It's in that moment that we need to be reminded of our good shepherd king. He suffered for us. He laid down his life for us. And he did all of this so that we might have a future and a hope. Brothers and sisters, it might be that the nearest that you find yourself with Christ is in your sufferings. And it could be that your sufferings aren't what's taking away from your fruitfulness in life for the sake of Christ. But it could be the, the very economy that God has placed you in. So that you might bear more fruit than you can imagine for the glory of his name. The name of a shepherd who laid down his life for you. Let's pray.